Once again, another privilege and honor to come here again and exhort you from the Word of God, found in Psalm 13. If you would, please turn into your Bible, in, if you're using the Pew Bible, 453, the page, Psalm 13. Again, reminding you, I'm reading from the New King James. Um, so if you notice any difference, that's the reason why I'm not inventing different words, just making sure. Psalm 13, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Thus far, God's living and life-giving word. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, you who recreates your people with the spirit who hovered upon the waters once, now abides in us, thus shaping us into the likeness of Christ until the sun rises once more. And the Son of Righteousness will be in front of us, and then you will behold us. The completed work of redemption done in you, you proclaim once again, it is good. Heavenly Father, be with us as we meditate upon your word together. And again, I pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasant in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray as such. Amen. Have you ever experienced extreme distress, sorrow, suffering, constant, unquenching pain? Maybe the loss of a child, maybe a spouse, maybe the betrayal of a very close friend. Maybe the betrayal of a children, children or child. Maybe the threat of many foes around you. Which comes with an inability to trust in anyone around you. When moments like this happen, Christian, Christians may have comfort from what they know about God. That God is ever-present, a very present help in times of trouble, as we read. Even in the book of Salt, or even in the Psalter itself. However, if there is something that the Psalms as a whole, in this particular Psalm that we now have in our laps, teaches us, is that there is a great difference, sometimes, between what a Christian know about God... And how a Christian feel about God. There are times 
of great distress, and those distresses affect both our bodies and our souls. And we feel lonely, abandoned, broken, and even desperate sometimes. Our only perceived companions are our tears and our sorrow. Precisely, dear congregation, how King David was feeling when he composed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, this psalm that we have in front of us. He was feeling abandoned by the Lord. And especially as we see uh, that the Psalms it's themselves, they, they portray in such a faithful way the, the cycles of our lives in a fallen world. The ups and downs, the mountains and valley experiences. We read David writing in Psalm 11 a bold confession of faith. And then in the following Psalm, Psalm 12, he's feeling lonely. And, and why? Because apparently all the godly people among the earth had disappeared. And he does not have his brethren anymore. And then we get to Psalm 13 where we are tonight. And it seems like even the Lord himself had abandoned him. That's how he felt. And that experience seems to be unbearable. Psalms like this confirm John Calvin's opinion about the book of Psalms. It is, they are kind of a spectrum of the human soul. They show all shades of emotions and experience that a sinner goes through his life under the sun. Suffering, brothers and sisters, is real. And will most certainly knock at the door of your heart, if it hasn't already. And suffering, especially the kind of suffering that causes you to be paralyzed, causes a great distress in your soul. But even in moments like this, in which we are assailed and weakened, saving faith still gets the victory. And here we have... One of the means whereby the Lord provides us to overcome the enemy called affliction, distress, and suffering, and even depression. And this means is biblical and Godward lament. It is in fact a lost art. And, 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 and we should recover that. Because if you look at the book of the, of, of the, book of, of the Psalter, pardon me. The vast majority of the Psalter is, com is made of, of psalms of lament. But we live in an age that uh, it's almost like we are trying to put forth some sort of Christian stoicism. And by that, children, I mean that we are denying our emotions. And we oftentimes pretend everything is okay. It's almost as if crying was only a children's business. The truth could be farther from that. We cannot be averted, averted to emotions. There is, of course, an extreme that we need to avoid, and that extreme is called emotionalism, in which our emotions are unquenched and unheld by the truth. But in this world, we will have afflictions, as even the Lord, the afflicted Lord of us all, taught us. Therefore, denying the importance of Godward lament and even the instrumentality that this discipline has in bringing back our feelings and affections back to the Lord. And 
in their role in our spiritual recovery is detrimental to our Christian lives. The Lord, therefore, dear congregation, has brought in front of us and has placed texts such as these in our Bibles so that we may be reminded that lament is not contrary, but is consistent with true and saving faith. Lament is not to be confused with murmuring. Lament does not complain about God to men, but lament is Godward. We lament to God. Lament brings everything to the altar of, gra altar of grace, to the mercy seat of the Almighty Lord. Again, lament is Godward. As the Father, about whom we, we heard this morning, has given us faith and united us to the Son, we have the Son's character impressed upon us, and this is particularly true during difficult seasons in our lives. Indeed, a school of suffering usually brings us closer to our Master, doesn't it? Our Master, who Himself is called the suffering servant, the one who is described as being acquainted with grief. And when we are in the dark seasons of life, drowning into the pit of sorrow, when we feel that we have reached the bottom of a valley, it is through the gift of faith that we can look above and beyond all the suffering around us. And I would like to quote my dear devotional companion, the Valley of Vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. In the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. And this is what this passage is going to teach us to do. This passage, in a nutshell, in a sentence, teaches us that faith's Godward sorrow, there's your first point, and prayerful sigh, second point, leads to joyful song, third point. Faith's Godward sorrow and prayerful sigh leads to joyful song. Let us see faith's Godward sorrow in verses 1 and 2. Spurgeon called this psalm the howling psalm. Given the number of times that the question, how long, how long appears? Four times in only two verses. And the repetition of this question is meant to convey an increased amount of anguish in David's soul. A disquietude of the soul that progressively mutates into a convulsion of the spirit. Maybe some of you are acquainted with this kind of experience. David's heart, dear brothers and sisters, is clearly in deep distress. And does he engage in this kind of Godward lament that I'm talking about? Now you may ask, what have caused David to be in such a pitiful state? We cannot know for certain. For the Bible does not reveal us. And the things that are hidden do not belong to us, but unto the Lord. But as you see, the details are not as important as they may be for some people like me that are always looking for more and more details. In fact, in God's perfect wisdom, the details could even have the potential threat of distracting us 
from what the Lord really wants us to understand in this word. This psalm is meant to portray the experience of a believer who is in deep agony. And by cutting to the chase of the issue, David, aided by the spirit of wisdom, goes to the heart of every distress, distemper, and desperation under the sun. A feeling of abandonment. Therefore, David questioned if the Lord would forget him forever and hide his face from him. And these two images are meant to portray the idea of God not acting in his favor. In other words, although David knew and would confess, even in Psalm 27 verse 10, that the Lord God never forgets, he is referring now to God's apparent indifference to his distress. How he was, as I said in the beginning, feeling towards God was different than what he knew to be true about God. Thus, dear congregation, when the scriptures uh, say that God has forgotten someone or something, what it means is that God is not apparently acting in favor of that person. At least from the writer's perspective, in this case here, David. And the opposite is equally true. When God remembers someone or something, he remembers it. That means that he's now is going to act in favor of that person. As he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he went then and saved his people from Egypt. But the idea of God's hiding his face from someone, the second thing that David asks the Lord is even more profound because it not only contains the idea of God's withholding his favor from him, but it has to do with David's very existence. It has to do with him even being alive. This is because apart from God's shining countenance, the darkness of death is everything that we have left. And this is how we should understand the Aaronic blessing of number six. That's why the priest was asking God to let his face to shine upon his people so that they may have life for God is the source of all life and the sustainer of it all. Therefore, the fact that David understood this this way is going to become more apparent as we progress in our passage. For this, David's desperation was to the point of death. He certainly felt that he was about to die. And if God was not to turn his face toward him, David knew for a fact that he would die indeed. Which brings us to verse 2. The expression of how long shall I take counsel in my soul. This expression taking counsel in, in one's soul. Has to do with the fact that a person persistent attempt. To find a way out of their depression, desperation, suffering. Through their own means and methods. And we should know either by experience at this point in our life, the older we are, the more we should know this truth. And children, let me remind you that you should never trust in your own intelligence. You are not as smart as you think you are. For the result of trying to find a solution to one's own problem, the, the, the result of trusting one's own heart is, as David says here, having sorrow in my heart daily. 
And then he proceeds, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? And here we see that David's predicament, David's problem, David's situation had an existential, a social, and a theological component. And I'm not saying that so that next time you see someone crying, say, do you know that your problem has an existential, social, and a theological component, my dear brother? That's not what I mean. But I want, I want to say that so that you may know something about how you should view the world around you. How your worldview should be. You see that the, the, the strength of David's conundrum here is that he was always conscious about three things. The presence of the Lord. Because although he felt abandoned, he knew the Lord was there. Otherwise, he wouldn't be addressing the Lord all the time. He was aware of the presence of the enemy, and we should never forget that, both within and without. And he was aware that the Lord was stronger than the enemy. You should never forget this, regardless of how you feel or where you are. Uh, this being said, let me bring you back to David's repeated questioning. How long? How long? How long? How long, Lord? They have the effect of a stairway to anguish, if you will. More and more, sorrow upon sorrow, suffering upon suffering. How slow, dear brothers and sisters, does time pass when we are suffering? Isn't that right? When things are okay around us, it seems like time flies. Our perception of time is different when we are in distress. It was Spurgeon again who said, A week in prison walls certainly feels longer than a month in liberty. Another theologian said, It is not the sharpest but the longest trials that we are in most danger of failing. As I pity my wife, she has herniated disc and she struggles. She's constantly feeling pain. It is hard. It doesn't matter. A strong pain for a moment is easier to cope than a constant pain all the time. And then the minutes and when those, that pain is spiritual is even harder because there's nothing we can do about it. And we're entirely dependent in a more obvious way upon God's intervention. And that's David is splitting with the Lord. How long Lord, the minutes are passing by, the hours, the days, the weeks, the months, the years. And I'm hanging in here through my fingernails. How long, oh Lord? I cannot see the deadline for this distress. How long? How much longer? Let me ask you this. Do you feel free to ask this kind of questions to the Lord in prayer? You should. You should have that liberty. Christian, remember, as we heard this morning, He is your Father. Let me encourage you, instead of turning from the Lord, as Israel did, to turn to the Lord in prayer when you feel like this. Brothers, every Christian, in different measures, of course, will share in the sufferings of Christ. It is only a matter of time and intensity. Therefore, these questions will come to you. These questions will come to your heart, if not to your lips. How long, Lord, do I need to fight against this cancer? Why is my marriage falling apart? How long? Why can't I find a suitable spouse? How long? 
Why can't I have children? How long? Why is my child so rebellious and will never heed my counsel? How long? How long? How long, O Lord? And as you ask these questions, saving faith, to use the expression by Dale Ralph Davis, has its instincts and will grasp in the dark of your affliction, knowing that the Lord is there. Although he feels distant, your faith will tell you he is there. Which brings us to our second point, faith's prayerful sigh, three and four. And what we have here in these verses are three imperatives followed by three arguments. And the imperatives are consider, hear, and enlightened, enlighten my eyes. They're not meant to be any reverence, lack of submission on David's part, but they are meant to convey the urgency that the servant of the Lord felt that he needed to be answered with. Consider here literally means gaze intently. Look, Lord, pay attention in me. And in this way, it is connected with the first request of David for the Lord to turn his face to him. Consider me, Lord, answer me, hear me. And in a genuine sense, all that David shows want is a sense of God's nearness. Oh, how blessed that sense is, isn't it? The blessed apprehension of the favor and presence of the Lord in our existence. It is the birthright of every Christian born from above, renewed by the Spirit of God in whom we live, move, and have our being. All that a child wants, and I'm sure if you ask any of you children here, what would you prefer, to have all the toys or electronics or whatever else you guys are liking these days? Or the presence of your parents with you, loving you, cherishing you. The gift of presence is the best of all gifts. Nothing can surpass that. Enlighten my eyes, O Lord, or I will die, says David. And here he's borrowing the image uh, that his very close friend Samuel Oh, sorry, Jonathan said in 1 Samuel 14, 29, when he was almost dying because of a foolish decision of his father Saul, and then when he had that honey that Saul had forbidden, he said that he, his eyes had been brightened by the sustenance of that honey. However, what we have here is even more profound, for David had already confessed that he is not only our nutrition, but he is also the source of all our existence. And life is found in the light of his countenance. And this is why we are being transformed from glory to glory, as his face is shining upon us, as we gather to worship him in spirit and in truth. And as we bask in the light of His countenance, we are being renewed, transformed, and conformed into His likeness. So, dear congregation, are you taking counsel in your heart, in your own soul, just to add to your sufferings? You should prayerfully be sighing to the Lord. Enlighten my eyes, O God, lest I die. He is your only hope. Where, where else 
Would you go if only Him has the words of life? Remember the promises that the Lord has made unto us about prayer. And lament is pointless if it does not end with prayer. A believer who thinks that prayer is not an effective means to plead with the Lord will not pray with the urgency that we are reading in this psalm. Therefore, when David moved from questions in the first stanza, verses 1 and 2, to imperatives, the change was not merely grammatical, but mostly spiritual. He was pleading with the Lord, following the footsteps of his father Jacob, then Israel, wrestling with the Lord in prayer, Genesis 32. And it is at this point that David's theology kicks in. For he had confessed that the Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Psalm 9 verse 12. Thus he says, Lord, lest I die, answer me. And then he continues to argue with the Lord. This is amazing to me. Lest my enemy prevails against me. And finally, the last argument, lest they rejoice over my grave. And although David was there speaking in the first person, you should remember that he's, he was God's Messiah, God's anointed. He was the king of Israel. Therefore, when he was talking about him, he was talking about the whole people. He was the representative of the whole people. So he's saying, God, come as the king of the universe. Rule and conquer and defend us and subdue all yours and our enemies, as our catechism teaches us. In a nutshell, he's saying, God... For your name's sake, save me. Can you see, brothers, how prayer is meant to be a thinking exercise? David is pleading with the Lord. He's arguing with the Lord and doing so based on God's own promises. I wonder how much of your prayer life is like that. I wonder how many of you, like me, sometimes fall into the temptation of just going through known routes and language and words in your prayers. I wonder how many of you had fallen into the mechanistic prayer life. You see, prayer is meant to be, or catechism again, short minute, short, shorter catechism, question 99. Prayers are meant to be Offering an offering up of our desires to God, and that for things agreeable to His will. One clear benefit in arguing in our prayers is to make sure that we are praying for things agreeable to God's will. As we argue, we will be in a better position to evaluate how good of a case we have with the Lord. And this in turn the more we see that we are praying for things agreeable to His will, the more boldness we will have to pray. Can you see how all the means of grace are connected? Our prayer is connected with our knowledge of Scriptures. Because what, on what basis are we going to evaluate if our, our case is good? On the basis of Scripture. Paraphrasing Luther here, prayer and reading of Scripture go together. They're like the two wings of a bird. He needs both to fly. And so do we. So do we. What a powerful and wondrous thing is when a child of God earnestly and sincerely prays for his or her 
affliction in such terms. God, deliver me so that all may see that your gospel is powerful to overcome anything that may befall us. Anything that may affect your church. Christians pouring out their whole beings before the Lord in the throne of majesty, mind and emotions. And as tears fall from their eyes, arguments flowing from their minds. And as you do so, I hope at a particular moment that I cannot guarantee when it will be. It may take a long time. It may not. But when that moment happens, when the Lord responds your prayer, you will be brought from sorrow to song. Which brings us to our last stanza, verses 5 and 6. Faith's joyful song. But I have trusted in your mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, unfailing love. So many different English translations to render the famous Hebrew word hesed. Is that term that uh, refers to, in a nutshell, God's resolute commitment to do His people good. God's resolute commitment to do His people good. It is to this word and commitment that Abraham's servant rejoiced when he found a wife for Isaac in Genesis 24, 27. Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his hesed and his truth toward my master. It is in this, in this very word that Yahweh himself uses to describe himself to his servant Moses. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping hesed for thousands. And later, David himself will confess in Psalm 23, 6. Surely, goodness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life. What a comfort. Notice the tense of the verb in verse 5 here. I have trusted. This faith was a constant in David's life. Which only confirms that it was his saving faith that was groping for comfort in the darkness of his suffering through Godward lament and prayerful sighs. He has trusted in God's covenantal faithfulness. That God is willing and able to fulfill all His promises. Hence, while David's enemies were rejoicing, anticipating his demise, end of verse 4, David resolved that he would rejoice in God's salvation. And then we read in verse 6, that he will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with him. I want to I draw your attention here to this verse, to the fact that David recognized that ultimate deliverance was still to come. It hadn't happened yet. We do not have any hint that David's circumstances changed from verse 4 to verse 5. See what he says. I will rejoice in your salvation. And then he states in the past, because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
no change in his circumstances, but the certainty that the Lord would fulfill his promises is the same certainty that the Apostle Paul has in Romans 8 when he says that we are already glorified in Christ Jesus. Although this is still pending, that glorious day. So none of the circumstances change in David's life, but he, David, did change. And what can explain such certainty about a reality that eyes cannot see and hands cannot touch, but saving in true faith? A Christian with true faith can be in a state just as David's. Again, to paraphrase Luther. In a state in which his despair's hopes and his hopes despair. We are, after all, people from the cross and the resurrection, aren't we? And he's speaking about the cross. Isn't Christ himself the embodiment of suffering? He was, in his earthly life, in a constant state of humiliation. He had taken the form of a servant, Philippians 2. Being subjected to the miseries of this life, the effects of the fall, and finally the cursed death of the cross. And as he was in deep agony, Christ prayed even more earnestly. And I don't, I'm not sure if you had gotten there yet, but you will if you hadn't. Luke 22, his sweat became like great drops blood when he prayed father if at all possible let this cup pass away from me still the cup wasn't taken away from him his circumstances did not change but Christ David's son and Lord trusted his father and during Christ's moment of most intense agony although he did not cry out how long how long he was he cried out on the cross because he was forsaken by his father. He was forsaken by his father. Dear brothers, David's questions in these psalms and your questions in your sufferings are brought out by our sense, our feeling that we had been abandoned by the Lord. But you can rest assured that you will never be really abandoned by the Lord. And you know I. Because David's son and David's Lord, Christ Jesus, was forsaken, abandoned, and afflicted so that you may never be. The God-man hanged on the cross and all was made dark as a sign of divine judgment upon him. The light of the Father's countenance taken away from him. The Father indeed turned away his face, from, his face from Christ Jesus for you so that you may he will never take away his face from you and the light of his countenance will sustain you whom he has saved. It was Christ himself, the forsaken servant of the Lord who said, of those whom the Father have given me, I will not let any one of them be lost. And what is more, Christ is not only the embodiment of suffering, but He is also the source of our salvation and the object of our faith. It is in Him that we must believe 
so that we may find salvation. For there is no other name among men through whom we must find salvation. Cling to him. Confess his name, dear congregation, and you will be saved. Give your life to him. And although he has warned us that in this world we may have afflictions, he has given us the means to overcome the world. And Godward lament is certainly one of those. If you think David's prayer, with all the urgency that he expresses here, with all the arguments that he has pleaded with before the Lord was bold, let me tell you something. You have no excuse to be less confident than David. What David saw from afar, we look in the rear mirror. The salvation of the Lord has already come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only thing that is left for us is His return in glory. Again, Christ not only provides you with means, He does much more than that. He gives you Himself. He gives you the gift of His presence. He has promised in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always until the end of age. Dear friends, dear congregation, can you see that an inference from this passage is that apart from God, you don't have hope. You don't have even a language to express your sorrow. Let me ask you, where or what is your hope? Is your hope true hope? How do you know that? Let me encourage you to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him find the hope that you need. Embracing the Lord is more than a decision that will take you in a moment. It's more than a little prayer that you can memorize. It is a lifetime commitment to make Him abide in you by His Spirit. Commitment that begins with God Himself, who may be planting the seed of faith in your heart at this very moment. It is going to change your life the way you think, the way, the way you speak, the way you act, and not because you have been trained like an animal is, but because you have been conquered by His justice, goodness, mercy, and truth. You have entered a personal relationship with a personal God. Come as you are, and He will heal you. Dear children, let me speak to you. Your, the faith of your parents will not save you, just like the food that they eat will not save you. Children, can you imagine your father saying, are you hungry? Okay, let me have this bread. And that's enough for you. You don't need to eat anymore. I, I ate already. Do you think that's going to satisfy you? I'm sure it won't. Just like the faith of your parents cannot save you. Come to the Lord Jesus, who is addressing you now to His Word. Dear Christians, let me tell you this once more and very explicitly. It is okay to verbalize your sorrow to God. It is okay to lament to God. To plead with Him. I at His feet. Have you ever seen a person whose expression clearly and obviously was a clear and obvious evidence that that person was suffering? And then you ask that person, are you okay? And the person just says, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. You know that that person is lying. And what does that tell you? Either that that person does not trust you, or that 
and there's nothing wrong with that, that person considers that no benefit could come by sharing that with you. But let me tell you, there is always a benefit of sharing your sorrows with the Lord. Always. Lament is the language we speak between the, this is too hard, and God is good and faithful. The language that we speak in between is lament. In fact, God expects that you will do that. It was He who inspired the apostles to write things like this. Cast all your troubles upon Him, for He cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. And again, the Lord, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't be proud. It is not a strong faith who saves, that saves, but a strong God. And even if you have a mustard seed faith, it was given to you. It is divine. Go to Him in prayer. God has given us this language of lament so that He can rescue us from the crisis we'll now face in this life. And thus, bringing us from sorrow to song. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Almighty Creator and Father of your people, Thank you, us for thank you, Lord, for inspiring such words in your word. For gi to give us the liberty to approach your throne of grace, grace with our hearts opened. With no hypocrisy. Knowing that you know and remember that we are dust. Oh, Lord, feed us with your word. Strengthen us and help us to go from the land of this is too hard to... You are good and faithful. Let us resolve now. I have trusted in the Lord. And I will sing to Him. For He has dealt bountifully with me. And this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.